We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. Sorry about that. Welcome, everyone, to the Truth Perspective. It's February 28th, and in the studio today, joining us, we have SOD editors William Barbe. Hello, everyone. We've got Ilan. Hey there. And me, Harrison Cayley. So, last week, uh, there have been a few kind of crazy stories that happened. Actually, just yesterday, we're going to start out with some, some kind of breaking news Assassination. Uh, there's been a pretty major level killing in Moscow, right outside the Kremlin. Opposition figure Boris Nemtsov. And, well, first, let's kind of get a little bit of background on this guy. So, well, he was killed. He was shot outside of the outside of the Kremlin, said. But, first of all, who was this guy, really? William, why don't you fill us in a bit? Well, he was uh, born October 9th, uh, 1959, in the resort city of Sochi. <clears throat> um, and he uh, actually went to some pretty extensive schooling. Um, he's uh, worked in some research institutes and was involved in uh, plasma physics, acoustics, and hydrodynamics, a candidate of the physical and mathematical sciences. And to his credit, he has more than 60 scientific papers on quantum physics, thermodynamics, and acoustics. And among uh, some of his inventions is acoustic laser and some parameters of antennas for spacecraft. Um, he didn't uh, start working into politics until 1991, which was during the uh, presidential elections when uh, Boris Yeltsin uh, came into power. And he was all... Um, supportive of Boris, um, and of course, Yeltsin liked uh, what he saw in him, and appointed him as a presidential envoy in the Nizhny Novgorod region, as well as head of the region. And uh, even Margaret Thatcher had some good compliments on this guy during that time. Oh, he must be a good guy then, <laughs> Margaret Thatcher. Wow. So he mostly worked in the Russian government. Uh, since 1997, he served as Minister of Fuel and Energy as well as the first Deputy Prime Minister in 97 and 98, and in the same period was a member of the Security Council of the Russian Federation. Several times politicians are elected in, to the parliament in the Russian Federation in 1990, and Nemtsov, uh, Nemtsov was elected deputy of the RSFSR and a year later in the Council of the Federation. And he was also a deputy of the state Duma from 1999 to 2003. In the same period, he served as deputy chairman of the state Duma and led the SPS. Interestingly, in 2004, the party officially, uh, Nemtsov, supported Viktor Yushchenko in the presidential election in Ukraine. Uh, at that time, few politicians supported the Orange <laughs> Revolution there. 
And he also made several trips uh, to Kiev to perform in the Orange Rallies. And from 2005 to 2006, he was a freelance advisor to the President uh, Yushchenko. Now, during the Crimea crisis, Nepsov criticized Russia for its foreign policy towards Ukraine. Um, in September 2014, he signed a statement to stop the aggressive adventure to withdraw from the territory of Ukraine, uh, Russian troops, and stop the propaganda, financial, and military support to the armed, uh, self-proclaimed supporters of DNI and the LC. Uh, since 2012, he has been a co-chair of the political party of Republican Party of Russia, People's Freedom Party. In 2013, he was elected a deputy at the Yaroslav Oblast Duma in the on the list of the party RPR. A post which he is currently uh, holding to date. Well, was. <laughs> Not anymore. No. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, so, he, so it sounds, he started in science, sounds like, and then got into politics in the 90s with the, you know, the mess that politics was in the 90s in Russia. And then I think it was around 2003, he kind of got out of politics again and, and, and focused mainly on business. And then in 2007, came out again as kind of re-entered the political sphere as a kind of what, well, an opposition, um, in opposition to Putin and the, the ruling party. Um, he has been a vocal critic of Putin and insulting him in public and on various occasions. And at, um, prior to, prior to him being shot and killed, apparently, um, he, he was quoted as saying that he was concerned that the president might want him dead over his opposition to the conflict in Ukraine. So, uh, well, right there is, that's an interesting statement because, well, now he's dead. So of course the, we haven't yet seen headlines in the Western press, like after MH17, you know, Putin kills Nemtsov, but I'm, you know, I'm wondering if we will in the near future, it wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility. In fact, I think it's probably pretty likely that that's the direction that the the mainstream press is going to go with this. Um, well, you know, even if they're not overtly saying it, uh, and a lot of these articles on the BBC and, and, uh, and major, um, uh, Information carriers, you have statements like uh, Nemtsov, you know, claimed that he feared for his life and that uh, the Putin mm-hmm. presidency was gonna, going to kill him. Litvinenko, uh, shades of Litvinenko affair, right? Yes, um, there are shades of, of a few different uh, affairs uh, in evidence here. So I think that we're seeing a lot of um, hints uh, in the suggestion of where we're supposed to be thinking about this this killing. Well, one other thing. Apparently, opposition leader Ilya Yashin said that his friend, Nansov, had been working on a report about Russian troops and their involvement in Ukraine. Now, of course, this is secondhand. If he was working about on this report, we don't know if he was, first of all, and we don't know what was in it or where he was getting his information. So just uh, maybe another little seed planted to create this new narrative or whatever narrative comes out, you know, that, that this was the KGB. It was a hit because, because Nemtsov was Putin's enemy. Um, you know, that's probably what's going to happen. 
but yeah and and it's uh it's clear that um i mean putin the russian presidency basically had uh no reason to kill this guy no uh, i i you know i think that much is obvious he um you know he was scheduled to be part of a uh a spring um russian rally tomorrow in opposition uh to the putin presidency um but putin has been so effective in in uh in saving off criticism okay. and and really i mean he's got an 85% approval rating um why he would be motivated to to kill uh uh anyone uh for political reasons within russia um and have such an obvious kind of dramatic event like that happening you know right in moscow for goodness sake uh you know it's just ridiculous but you know the the western media all they have to do is throw out a few a few suggestions here and there and and uh you can be sure that there are a number of people who are going to jump to conclusions about it well putin went ahead and sanctioned that that rally for tomorrow and that's yeah. given his approval well i think i think they they had said no to it being a certain spot or something like that, but now they're approving it because now it's going to be a, mem- a memorial rally. So th- they've got to go ahead to have the memorial rally for for Nemtsov. And well, just a little bit about well, first of all, correction: I, I accidentally said KGB earlier. It's not the KGB anymore; it's the FSB. So the the killing itself. So what happened exactly? So Friday night. Nemtsov was walking close to the Kremlin, just outside the Kremlin, to his apartment, apparently. He was walking with a young woman, 23-year-old model actress, Anna Duritskaya, um, who was a native to Kiev. So this, she was a Ukrainian uh, model, 23 years old. Nemtsov was 55. So he was walking home with a, you know, with a woman half his age to his apartment when it happened. Uh, a car, a light-colored, white-colored car, drove by, and one or more people in the car opened fire. Apparently, it was a pistol. They shot, depending on the the reports, anywhere from four to seven, maybe more times. Um, hit him in the back. Apparently, he was hit four times. the The woman with him was unharmed, and then the car drove away. It hasn't been confirmed yet, but apparently the car has been found. You can see pictures of it on Twitter. So we will probably have confirmation for that sometime soon. And uh, so a, a full investigation has been launched. You know, everyone in in the presidential administration, Putin himself, has made statements. Uh, his press guy, his press secretary, uh, Peskov, Dmitry Peskov, has made statements. So they, and Putin has basically said this was a, a horrible act, of course, and they're going to they're going to find the people that were responsible and <clears throat> bring them to justice. Now, so what could the possible motive for this be? Well, there are a few, and the investigation is apparently looking into five possible motives. Uh, first of all, Putin had said that that it has all the signs of a contract killing. And that it was, quote, extremely evocative. Now, the police are saying that they're kind of the motives that they're looking for 
Um, let's see here. Well, one of them is that it could be personal. So of course it could, it could just be a, a personal vendetta or some, for some reason against Nemtsov because everyone has enemies, especially if you're in Russian politics. There's also, let me see. Yeah. So another possible motive was that it was a deliberate pr- provocation to destabilize the political situation in Russia. So this was a political killing with political motives. We'll get in that, into that one a bit later on. Um, it could have also been linked to the threats that Nemtsov had received over his stance on the Charlie Hebdo shootings in Paris or for his stance on the current war in Ukraine. So we've heard what he had to say about Ukraine. He's kind of um, criticizing the so-called Russian involvement. In and as for Charlie Hebdo, he, he it's hard to find information exactly on what he said on that, at least in the English press, but apparently uh, he kind of, he condemned the, the killings. And I can only guess that it was probably, he probably just came out with the, the line that all the Western politicians had. That's what I'm guessing is that um, because it's hard to see, to see him saying anything else that would be seen controversial in the in Russia. I don't know. Maybe if we have a maybe if any of our listeners have any information about that, they could let us know. And it could have also had something to do with his business activities. So right now the the options are open, at least for the the Russian police, but. The the idea that it was a, a deliberate provocation is probably one that seems most likely, to me at least for the moment, because this comes at a very particular time, like we said, right before this this planned opposition rally. Nemtsov is kind of the one of the big figures, public figures of opposition. And, you know, like William was saying, he's been known, uh, he's been a public figure in Russia for for decades. People know him. But at the same time, like you said, Ilan, there's really no reason for for the Russian authorities to have killed him, partially because while he may be a, a public figure and well-known, he doesn't really have that much support. Um, just before the the shooting happened, there there was a uh, a report on RT on the the results of a one of the latest polls that they conducted on, on Russians about what they thought about opposition parties and just opposition in general. And the results of that were that over half of all Russians, 58% agreed that the opposition is a necessary part of the political system, but only 19% agreed um, or would basically, you know, vote them into power or, or, you know, so they're like, yeah, we need to support them. Yeah. We need an opposition, but you know, we don't really support them. We wouldn't really vote for them. So they don't really want to see them in power. It's just, you know, it's just something that they, it's the right thing to have. The end principle, it's good to have opposition, yeah. but that's about it. And 22% of the respondents uh, opposed the very existence of opposition movements in the country. So 22% of Russians, you know, I don't even think that Russia needs opposition. They're perfectly happy with, with the government as it is. Um, so they, that percentage of the population said that uh, having an opposition only atomizes the community by causing unnecessary conflicts. Well, and there's, you know, there's an argument to, to be said for that, especially when the opposition is um, like very much influenced by foreign NGOs and, you know, pro-democracy movements that are intent on only getting out the the current power and putting in one that's favorable to Western powers. So. 
there's that to consider. And of course, the irony is that, uh, you know, the, the more foreign pressure, um, is, uh, made upon Russia, whether through economic sanctions <laughs> or demonization by the West, uh, the more the Russian people seem to rally around Putin. Mm-hmm. Uh, so really, you know, if, if this was a, uh, you know, intelligence agency, CIA backed, uh, assassination, um, it's, it, it's gone or will go probably, uh, in, in a unfruitful direction. Mm-hmm. Well, Nemtsov was part of what is called the non-system opposition. And in this poll, the, the Russian people said that they considered the non-system opposition. Um, well, they, the non-system opposition claimed even fewer supporters than any, anyone else. Only 3% said that they sympathized with the Solidarity Coalition. And that, of course, uh, that includes Nemtsov. So he didn't really have that much support anyways. So, you know, how, how big of a threat could he be within Russia to to um, Putin or just the existing government, not a very big one. The uh, well, just a little bit more on the, on this poll because it was kind of interesting. There's some interesting stats in there. Um, others, so yeah, the call to cancel the alleged censorship in mass media was shared by only five percent of Russian citizens. So the Russian citizens think their media is all right. Sounds, you know, all right to me. Kerry doesn't seem to think so. Yeah, no. <laughs> He's complaining. We need more money. RT is taking over. Yeah, RT. You can hear RT in English, but can you hear our news in Russian? We have to do something about this. Speaking of RT, uh, just a quick uh, footnote. I, I was in New York recently, and um, we have a, a service provider there that um, I think is no longer, and, and maybe, you know, someone can uh, verify this. I don't think they're carrying RT in New York anymore. Uh, and uh, that's funny because, you know, there, there were so many things I'd been watching on it that, of course, provide an alternative um, uh, perspective to what we're hearing. And um, I thought, geez, how, how much longer are they going to be allowed, quote unquote, to uh, continue broadcasting? So um, I have to check into that further. But, um, you know, it, it seems like there is already a... Uh, a kind of a, um, a, a movement, uh, towards, uh, getting RT, uh, off the airwaves, um, in the U S well, if they have the dish network, they can connect to it. Mm-hmm. Another statement that was made recently, uh, one of my, one of my favorite public speakers, cause he always has fun stuff to say, Ramzan from Chechnya. <laughs> he said, only the powers interested in destabilization could act so wickedly in reference to the Nemtsov assassination. The, organi- the organizers of this murder were hoping that the whole world would blame the country's leadership and thus would provoke protests. No doubt that this murder was organized by the Western Special Services who try by any means to induce internal conflicts in Russia. The hatred of Kiev towards Russia is also a factor. Nemtsov's death sentence earlier passed in some Western capital could be executed by the hands of the Ukrainian special services. Oh, interesting. So this guy, well, interesting to know what this guy's relationship was, Nemtsov, to the woman that he was with, the Ukrainian woman. Also, William, you'd mentioned that he was uh, involved in the 2004 Orange Revolution. 
Now, interestingly enough, in 2012, he was caught walking directly into the U.S. Embassy to meet with U.S. Ambassador to Russia, Michael McFall. Now, this guy, McFall, had been on the board of directors for both Freedom House and, well, I'm not, not sure if he was on the board for the NED, the National Endowment for Democracy, or if he just worked with them. He might have been on the boards for both. And McFall himself had admitted in newspaper articles in after 2004 that both the NED and the and Freedom House had interfered in Ukraine and were involved in the revolution, so-called revolution there. So McFall himself was involved with these organizations and was no doubt involved in the subversion of democracy in Ukraine at that time. And he himself had close ties, or some ties at least, with Nemtsov. So some interesting connections there. It'll, uh, something to look into more to see what else there is. Because so, so right there, you've got Nemtsov himself connected with the NED and Freedom House, these U.S. NGOs that foster freedom and democracy around the world by, you know, subverting free democracy around the world. The same NGOs, by the way, who uh, were in support of Alexei Navalny, uh, who was um, a few months ago the other uh, um, Russian opposition leader, uh, flavor of the and he uh, when he left his um, his uh, I guess it's a um, home uh, imprisonment uh, status to uh, to go out in a square in Russia and, and speak out against Putin. So, um, I mean, I think that uh, Navalny was probably one of Russia's last last hopes in uh, in stirring up trouble and. Um, and as Tony Cartolucci recently mentioned in an article, you know, if if you're not useful to uh, to color revolution or, or or change in Russia, you know, alive, then you might be useful or more useful dead. Uh, but um, I was just uh, just looking at Saad a little while ago, and there was a um, a video of Putin. And a kind of a town hall um, meeting with people who are just, you know, asking him questions informally. And uh, he was responding to them off the top of his head. And um, one of them asked a pretty pointed question, I guess, uh, regarding uh, false flags and, and rallies that kind of points directly to um, what we've just seen. And... Um, Putin had some interesting things to say. This was back in 2012. He said, concerning false flag attacks at rallies and such, I hope no one will step over the line. Everything will be kept within legal limits. And hopefully the attempts to provoke law enforcement have been in vain. Because the forces you mentioned really want violent clashes and keep trying to start them. They are even ready to sacrifice someone in order to blame the government. I know this method and tactic. They've been trying to use it for the past 10 years. This method mostly used by those working abroad. I'm telling you, I know this is a fact. They're even looking for someone to be made a martyr, a famous person of some sort. They will whack him themselves, sorry for the phrasing, and then blame the government. There are people capable of this. I am not exaggerating here. 
I hope that people who really want to improve our country and to this end use their right of assembly of free speech do not fall for this ploy. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's prophetic. Uh, if if we consider the strong possibility that Nemtsov was uh, was murdered by uh, Western interests. And speaking of creating um, or finding a personality for for a scenario like Putin talked about, um, John Kerry recently said that Nem. Nemtsov committed his life to a more democratic, prosperous, open Russia and to strong relationships between Russia and its neighbors and partners, including the United States. So Nemtsov, kind of like we've seen with people like the all those exiled oligarchs that turn up in, in other countries, you know, after they fled Russia or were kicked out for ruining the place, they're kind of, they're lauded as these noble upholders of democratic virtue and they're just almost saints in the eyes of western governments and ngos when you know they're anything but but so this is kind of what we're seeing with Nemtsov because he was an opposition figure he's being portrayed as this martyr as this this great hope for russia that has been cut down when i mean great hope for russia uh no (laughs) Well, well here's one for you this one's from john mccain Oh, yay. yay. Boris is dead because of the environment of impunity that Vladimir Putin has created in Russia, where individuals are routinely persecuted and attacked for their beliefs, including by the Russian government. And no one is ever held responsible. Just classic McCain. Well, one of the I mentioned one of the reasons why this is a kind of curious event, and that was the timing of it, not just the timing uh, coming before the opposition rally, but this comes after certain events in Ukraine and things have taken certain directions in Ukraine. So we can tell, we know that Western NGOs, the Western government, want regime change in Russia. They don't want Putin in power. They are doing and will do anything in their in their power to to have that happen, to to get rid of Putin. And so they were hoping and have been hoping for a Russian Maidan like they saw in Ukraine. They want basically a coup, a change in government, regime change. But it hasn't worked so far as we've seen. I mean, Putin is only getting more popular because the Russian people, well, I wonder if if the engineers of these kind of information warfare tactics and the the guys just calling the shots in how to carry out this this project if they're just totally stupid and they can't see that everything they do has the total opposite effect because it should be i mean it should be pretty obvious because if you look at it from a russian's point of view they identify with putin they see all these bad things happening as as being attacks on their leader and so they rally behind Putin and the government because of these things happening that way. So he ends up getting more support, even if the economy isn't so great, the rubles dropping, you know, even if Russians are getting killed in East Ukraine, Nova Russia, it, this is, this is only bringing Russians closer together because they have a, you know, they have this common enemy. And so they've got this real common enemy. And then in the West, we see the, all the media and politicians are trying to get Westerners, ordinary people, 
to see a common enemy in Russia when the situation is totally the reverse. So we saw this apparently on the surface successful coup d'etat in Ukraine last year, around a year ago. And so that, you know, that was a great, a great boost for, for democracy in Ukraine, right? Mm-hmm. Well, no, but, but, you know, it was, it was a success, right? I mean, the, the U.S. got the people they wanted in there, but then the, the whole, the country got bogged down in a civil war because it turns out that Donetsk and Lugansk wouldn't have any of it. So for the past, uh, how many months has it been since the, the anti-terrorist operations started? It's been, uh, I don't know, 10 months already, something like that. That hasn't gone the way that the the guys in Kiev and their masters from the CIA and U.S. State Department have wanted. And we saw this earlier this month with the whole Debaltseva thing in, in Donetsk and Lugansk, where, uh, which prompted the, the Minsk 2.0 agreements. So the just like happened last year in Ilovaysk, the the Ukrainians got themselves trapped, a whole bunch of their troops trapped in a so-called cauldron. So they're surrounded on all sides. And then they say, you know, when things stop going their way, they go, okay, well, hold on a sec. Let's have a ceasefire here so we can you know, solve this because things didn't turn out like we planned. So this happened again in January in Debaltseva. And so, well, you know, this is bad. What are we going to do? So let's have these Minsk agreements only when Poroshenko got there, he, you know, wasn't really aware seemingly that there was a cauldron in Debaltseva. And so what eventually happened, even though these agreements were signed and agreed on, um, you know, ceasefire withdrawal of heavy weapons, constitutional reform, um, in, you know, de facto independence for, um, Donetsk and Lugansk among other measures is that, Poroshenko and the military command in Kiev kind of just abandoned the thousands of troops that they had trapped there, denying that the cauldron existed. And then when, uh, you know, a number of them managed to to break out of the cauldron with very little gear, um, then they called it a an organized and planned withdrawal, you know, a total success. When in actuality, these guys just barely managed to escape, left behind the majority of their their weapons and gear, not to mention all the fellow troops that they were there with. And these guys themselves, you can see videos of them on YouTube um, calling out the military command and Poroshenko himself for abandoning them there and lying about it, leaving them to their deaths because they they had two options. Basically, they could... Uh, you know, they could break out and break the ceasefire or attempt to break out or they could surrender. Well, many of them surrendered, but they had orders not to surrender. And even those who did surrender or try to break out then had to en- the, had to encounter the troops that were stationed there to shoot any people trying to to uh, to retreat. So they were just they were trapped there with no options. Now, uh, the DPR officials, so the 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 authorities in Donetsk, they released the uh, the figures for the fighting between January 12th and February 20th. So this was the time of that whole Debaltseva cauldron. 
um, from when it started until right after the Minsk agreements, when it was finally taken care of and the cauldron was pretty much uh, entirely cleared. So these are the figures that they gave. First of all, uh, well, these are all um, Ukrainian losses. And so, you know, it's it's hard to know. We can't be totally sure that these figures are totally accurate. Um, but based on the the videos coming out, the photographs, um, it doesn't look that out of the out of the ballpark. So, enemy losses, Ukrainian losses, ten thousand nine hundred forty killed or wounded. That includes. 4,110 killed. So 4,000 Ukrainian soldiers killed in that period of time, mostly in Debaltseva. 4,000. Officially, only five, like 5,500 people have died in the entire conflict so far in the last year. So if these figures are accurate, well, first of all, that figure itself, 5,500, that's the official estimate, but German intelligence says it's probably close to 10 times that, so about 55,000, 50,000, somewhere around there. Ouch. But 4,000 Ukrainian troops killed in less than a month. Oh, no, sorry, over a month, a month and a week. 1,178 prisoners of war. So these are all guys that have either surrendered or been captured. And if you just add that up together, that's over 5,000 troops. Um, and there were estimates when the cauldron first formed that there were anywhere from five to 8,000 troops in the, in, the, in the cauldron. So that gives you some idea of how many of those guys were either killed or surrendered or, um, or captured. Now, equipment losses. This is pretty uh, astounding. Uh, 299 tanks. Ukrainian tanks, 28 of which were captured intact in Debaltseva. So basically, you know, these they were just abandoned in perfect working condition, perfect working condition with ammo. Just you know, they could the the Novorossians could just drive off with them. There were several others that were in repairable condition, so they will be worked on and um, and then utilized after that. But three almost 300 tanks, 299, many of which were destroyed. Of course, uh, 49 self-propelled artillery. So these are kind of like, they look kind of like mini tanks, but they're just not as heavily armored. Uh, 15 of those were captured in usable condition. 155 infantry fighting vehicles, 33 of which were captured. Again, that's kind of like a, it looks like a little mini tank. 121 armored personnel carriers, 30 of which were captured. 25 multiple rocket launchers. That includes the, the those are the, the the weapons you see kind of, it looks like they're mounted on the back of the truck, angled up, and you just see all the rockets firing out of them. Um, the Grad missiles or Smirch missiles. So 25 of those. 205 towed artillery pieces, 36 120 millimeter mortars, 16 anti-aircraft guns, two armored recon vehicles, 290 motor vehicles, three SU-25 attack aircraft, one helicopter, four UAVs or drones, and, of course, the, the, the abandoned state-of-the-art counter-mortar radar supplied to the Kiev military by the United States. So, I mean... So, so basically, uh, a debacle. 
yeah. for, for the Kiev military, a strategic debacle, uh, uh, a, yeah, a huge defeat, a huge like, defeat, a huge loss, uh, that, uh, Kiev is trying to cover up and, and, uh, and undercut and belittle. Um, and, uh, and they're just, they're struggling. And so, you know, if, if you, you know, getting back to, um, uh, the Boris Nemtsov assassination for a moment, just putting that in context, it seems like an act of desperation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like the West doesn't know what to do. Um, and they're, they're grasping at straws here because, uh, there is a, a countermeasure or a, uh, or a strategy or, um, an outmaneuvering of, uh, of Western designs on, uh, destabilizing Russia mm-hmm. at every corner. And so they're doing the only thing they know how, which is to kill a person or a bunch of people and then structure the event in such a way to get the outcome they want. Now, there's, we'll have to wait and see how this memorial rally goes, but there's been some speculation from you know various internet commentators on what could happen. Um, it's possible, at least, that this coming rally could be used to the same purpose. I mean, if you have some gunmen stationed at this rally to take out some of these opposition pe- opposition protesters or the leaders or speakers that are there, I mean, it would just escalate. I mean, that would be a, a big situation. And, of course, in the West, then it will be presented as, well, just like the, the Maidan was presented. You had the snipers in, at Maidan that were um, blamed on the existing power and not the so-called revolutionaries, the you know, the crazies that were, uh, you know, jumping on the streets like lunatics. My guess is that, um, well, after this murder happened, uh, the, the presidential office said that they were personally handling the investigation. So they're probably anticipating, um, any kind of, uh, um, advantage that might be taken from this and are going to have security and intelligence people up the wazoo around this uh, day of mourning. Yeah, because you can be sure that if <clears throat> if the FSB um, didn't have any hand in this, which there's no reason to think they did, that they are, first of all, kind of, um, what's the word, um, blaming themselves or at least not very happy that they let this happen mm-hmm. because... You don't, I mean, you don't want something like this to happen in your country because you see where, where it can lead. I mean, you don't, you, they wouldn't want Nemtsov to be killed because they understand how that could be used. And so, of course, I'm sure there's probably, uh, well, first of all, they want, they also probably want to find out exactly what happened. Now, whether we'll eventually find out who is responsible is hard to say if, if they'll find, they'll probably find some guy with, no discernible connection to the people that were actually responsible. Um, you know, and he, the, the guy that the guy that was responsible could even have been chosen um, in such a way that the connections that he does have will point towards else. I mean, that's standard op- operating procedure. When you pick a patsy, you don't want 
to have any real connection with them to implicate yourself. And it's easy enough to find um, in one way or another someone, like even someone with connections to the FSB, let's say, and to turn them, or it could be an, you know, an internal, uh, could be a double agent, could be someone that they've just turned or blackmailed in such a way to, to carry out this act and thereby implicate a, a third party and not the person actual or the group actually responsible. So hopefully nothing else happens during this rally. If it does, that would just give the, the Western media and politicians so much more um, you know, opportunity to exploit it for their own reasons. But we'll just have to wait and see, I guess, what happens with that. Well, the sad part is, you know, like MH17, it just kind of goes down the memory hole. You know, you have this message, you know, Russia's culpable, Russian aggression, uh, and you hear it so many times in reference to a specific event. And, of course, there's no follow-up, no clarity, and people forget that it even happened in many cases. Uh, And then there's this other event. And, um, you know, Maybe that's maybe that in their minds is a, is a partial success, uh, you know, a, a propagandistic uh, strategy that uh, that just plants enough uh, negative uh, ideas in someone's mind to uh, to to get them thinking in in the wrong direction. And if or when the final investigation is concluded, depending. Whatever the final result is, what is the Western media going to say and what are Western politicians going to say? Oh, you can't trust the report. I mean, it was conducted by the very people who were responsible. So then we're going to get the the kind of thing like you see with the with the Litvinenko affair or the journalist, what's her name, Anna Politnatskaya or something like that, where there's no evidence to show that Putin personally or the FSB or whomever was responsible, but that's the narrative that you see in the West because it had to have been them. And anything the Russians say to the contrary is, well, you'd expect them to say that. So the the seed has been planted already just by the fact that this guy is a, or was a, a big opposition figure to Putin, consider one of Putin's personal enemies. So that's all that people are going to remember. And it's very easy to exploit that after the fact, no matter what an investigation will reveal or who is eventually exposed as being behind it because you can't trust the Russians. <laughs> that simple. Well, in a uh, back to Ukraine, a funny little story from last week. So apparently just like the, there's some desperation. It looks like there's some desperation behind the, the motivation for the Nemtsov killing. It looks like there's some desperation going on in Ukraine as well among the military intelligence, you know, ministry of truth kind of um, people over there because apparently Ukraine needs an information army. So what they did is they threw some, um, like there's this, through a, a guy, a politician, journalist um, with connections to various groups and um, he even does work, I think, for the Russian embassy or the I think the Russian embassy in Ukraine created this uh, Ukrainian information army website. So for Ukrainians or anyone 
to create accounts and become part of Ukraine of Kiev's information army. And so there's a blog Fort Russ out there that you should probably all check out because it's really good. Presents all kinds of translations of news that you can or that you would only be able to get in Russian. And so one of the translators there, Jayhawk, he actually signed up for an account to be a, a Ukrainian information warrior. And uh, just to see what it, what, what it was like and what would happen. So he received several messages, uh, just uh, ridiculous messages um, with instructions on what to do. So basically, you know, sign up for their Facebook and, and uh, VK accounts and Twitter. And, and I'll read one of them. This was one of the last ones that he received, the fourth, I believe. So this is, this is what they say. Commenting on the news of the enemy, you have to understand that you may be blocked or banned at any time because you are spreading the truth. That's what Kremlin's information agents do. Agents of the Kremlin never use their real pages. For this purpose, they create other accounts. Here are the instructions on how to create bots in the Russian army. 1. Register new mailbox. 2. Then register a new page in social networks uh, using the new email. 3. Bots assume common Russian names, for example... Alexander Ivanov, Sergei Shevchenko, Grigoryev Allah, and so on. The user profile form is filled completely out, filled out completely. City of residence is often Ukrainian, mostly from the Donbass region. Avatar, a photograph of a real person. Typically, these reflect a graphics editor. Seven, the account's photo, al- photo album is filled with photographs of the, quote, native city, nature, and more. These pictures can be found in social networks or Google image image search. The bot starts by reposting popular pages on general non-political topics. The user also makes actual personal posts on topics such as cutlets, neighbors, or other similar topics. The idea is to create the impression that this is a, quote, live account. Nine, bots added friends, but no more than 10 a day and no more than one in 10 seconds. Otherwise, they might be blocked by social networks. The more friends a bot has, the more confidence that he is likely to gain. 10. Bots are only... uh, Bots are also... mm, Bad English. Subscribe to public pages and groups from the native city. So basically that's... Subscribe to those those pages and groups for the city that you've created for yourself. And lastly, typically bots do not friend true pages or pages of their relatives. In order to ensure the Russian fake accounts do not block or ban you, we recommend that you hide your name and personal data. Wait soon for the next task. Till next contact, sincerely, staff, information forces of Ukraine. So they're basically, it's like Hasbara light. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking the same thing. So, and it's funny that, so this is how the Russian bots work, of course. But I, yeah, I wonder how many of those Donbass region website or uh, personal accounts are actually bots and not just people that actually live in Donbass. I mean, <laughs> but... Anyways, so so Ukrainian. If you want to join the Ukrainian Information Army, you just got to create a whole bunch of fake accounts, spread the truth about what's really going on in Ukraine. So talk about all those epic Ukrainian victories, the victorious withdrawal, strategic withdrawal from Debaltseva. Um, you know all the Russian tanks that have been blown up by Ukrainian military. Just you know you can spread all that stuff using your fake Ukrainian account with the pictures you found on Google and a common Ukrainian name. So yeah, good luck. Well, it'll be interesting talking to you guys on, <laughs> on the comment section of, you know, or wherever.
Moving on. Let's see. Well, just one comment from from Putin before this Nemtsov thing happened that I found pretty interesting. He gave an interview to a Russian journalist guy who's pretty popular over there and said about Ukraine and the Minsk agreements that the priority is the 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 biggest priority for Ukraine right now is fixing the economy, the social sector, human rights and relationships uh, the relation or relations with the People's Republics of Donetsk and Lugansk, and that quote for now there is no need for extreme measures in relation to DPR and LPR. Now this is if the Minsk agreements are followed. Now the question that was asked to Putin was that it was if um, Russia would end up officially recognizing. DPR and LPR, because until now they haven't. Uh, uh, Russia's official policy, which has been consistent from the beginning, was that uh, Russia would prefer a um, a unified or at least, you know, um, federated. Yeah, but um, a single Ukraine. Mm -hmm. They don't they don't want Ukraine to to split up into um they don't want Donetsk and Luhansk to to leave Ukraine they want them to be part of Ukraine even if um in some kind of like federated structure or you know de facto um independence whatever but they want Ukraine to remain a whole for you know various geopolitical reasons but so so Putin responds with this very conditional statement that, and he calls it an extreme measure, saying extreme measures will not be taken, you know, if the Minsk agreements go th- uh, f- are followed up on, and, you know, for now. So just those words themselves suggest that these so-called extreme measures are at least on the table. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the Minsk agreements themselves, the, the latest batch, 2.0, it's. I mean, we discussed it before. When you read the points there, they look impossible mm-hmm. because the Ukrainian government, as it is, I mean, there's no there's no support for these things. Constitutional reform, sitting down at the table with the these so-called terrorist leaders in Donetsk and Lugansk. I mean, how likely is any of that going to going to happen? It's it's not. It, it's not. Exactly. And, and on top of that, you have, uh, you know, the U.S. military continuing to send advisors. Uh, you have, uh, did you, there, was, there was a story about uh, some police in Reno um, in the U.S. who were uh, going to be sent to, to teach policing uh, to uh, the Ukrainians. Uh, so, I mean, I, I don't know, I don't know what the West is thinking. I mean, they're they're grasping at straws. And there was this other thing about uh, trucks with U.S. flags, uh, actually tanks, uh, driving through uh, parts of Estonia, just about a kilometer away from the uh, Russian border, uh, making shows of force, uh, trying to instigate something. Uh, I don't know if it's a, a failing strategy or, or they're, they're just grasping at straws here. Um, but uh, they're, 
you know, the situation, as we were saying, is getting really desperate. Um, uh, and the aim, of course, is to suppress and crush um, uh, the, the peoples of, of Donetsk and Lugansk and uh, take over their resources. Uh, they're in the, the process of trying to cleanse them uh, or cleanse these lands of these people. Uh, there's a mass exodus of, of people to uh, neighboring Russia. Um, you know, it, it really, it remains to be seen what uh, the U.S. has up its sleeve as its next step towards uh, trying to achieve its aims and in, in securing the area for themselves. Yeah, it was interesting to see some videos out now that uh, Ukraine has lost so many weapons. Now mm-hmm. they're showing videos of them restoring old weaponry from World mm-hmm. War Two to to show what a sorry state that they're in. They need help. And so then promptly after that, Poroshenko met with Saudi Arabia to, yeah. to make some arms deals. United Arab, United Arab Emirates. UAE. Yeah. And uh, that kind of sounds like a backdoor way for the United States to supply yeah. weaponry. <laughs> of course. We lost all our weapons. Give us some. <laughs> you guys wanted this war. Yeah, I mean, they're perfectly justified in asking for the weapons. I mean, it's not their war. <laughs> the U.S. should be giving them more weapons. Because the U.S. are, you know, the U.S. Is the one, are the ones responsible for this and egging it on. So, but at least Russia is making it hard for the U.S. to to get away with this stuff. Because even like with this, with the latest Minsk agreements, which were probably actually written by Putin, he also made a statement in the in the interview hinting at it. By, uh, he made reference to this one footnote that was put in there because he was talking about how, how much input that the, the German and French, uh, so Hollande and Merkel, how much input they put in. And he said, oh, and you see this this footnote here? You know, they, they wrote that footnote because they really wanted that in there. And, okay, so they wrote the footnote. Okay. Well, so who wrote the main point for wh- you know to which the, foot po- the footnote was added? Well... It obviously wasn't Poroshenko because he had to be strong-armed basically into, you know, for 17 hours into agreeing to it. So who does that leave? Well, it leaves Putin. But anyways, so they, they've they created this document um, w- with the approval and support of, you know, major Euro- European powers like France and Germany that is apparently agreed upon, agreed to by all these parties Um showing the the wish and intention for peace and resolving this conflict but which Kiev will be unable to fulfill so it puts everyone except Poroshenko in a position of looking like the good guys because in this situation they kind of are and he's kind of left in this impossible situation where except for all of the propaganda He's really, you know, he'll he'll come out looking like the bad guy, which he is. So it's kind of a a, a mini coup in that sense for uh, for the forces of truth and justice. <laughs> well, I think even, you know, it's funny. Merkel came out uh, a few days ago uh, with a statement that um, if they're going to accomplish anything, uh, they have to have Russian input. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that was said in in regards to 
well, obviously Ukraine. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's clear that, um, she's trying, uh, and she is probably also someone who's extremely pressed to, uh, to follow the dictates of, of Washington. Um, but I think Minsk 2.0 is, it's, is probably dead in the water. Yeah. And, uh, all the, you know, all the counter moves are, are being anticipated, uh, as we speak by Russia. But about Minsk, one of the, one of the interesting things that, that I kind of saw afterwards was that first of all, there was an interview with Zakarchenko, prime minister of Donetsk. And well, I, uh, I believe it was, it was him. If not, it was one of, one of the top guys there who had said, basically at, at Minsk, they, they learned that they've really got to, to learn basically diplomacy and how to get things done politically. And so they learned a lot of things. And from now on, they're, they're not only going to be militarily superior, but they're going to also be superior on the diplomatic front. And, you know, basically working the system the way politicians work it in order to get what they want. Um, and if, and so since then, we've seen that Donetsk and Lugansk have been, um, while there, well, while there has been criticism of, uh, of their behavior, especially in Debaltseva because of the, um, you know, the interpretation of the different points in Minsk and, you know, was this really a cauldron? Well, yeah, it was, but, you know, so where was the front actually and blah, blah, blah. But Donetsk and Lugansk have been the ones that have actually been following the Minsk agreements and making a point of showing the world that they are following these agreements and will and taking measures to put them into place. So they they did stop, you know, all um, or all major operations responded only when fired upon because Kiev continued to shell various areas, including Debaltseva and the uh, the Donetsk airport, Donetsk itself, uh, Mariupol. And then they initiated their withdrawal of heavy, of heavy weaponry to the demarcation line. As of yesterday, there were, they were 90% and 80% done in Donetsk and Lugansk, respectively. And Zakarchenko made a, a statement saying that they were completing the withdrawal yesterday. So by today, it's probably done. They've withdrawn all their heavy artillery. And yet, uh, Kiev simply made a statement that they were starting to do it, but with no um, no real evidence, first of all. And the OSCE is saying that they have observed the with have observed artillery being moved, but they can't uh, they can't verify that it's been it has been moved because they need all the proper documentation for both sides, where the equipment was, the exact route that it was taken, where it, where it is going, and where it will be kept. So. Uh, so despite Donetsk and, U- and Lugansk actually moving their artillery and the OSCE observing it, the OSCE will not make a statement that it has, it has been done until they receive all the paperwork. Well, first of all, that of, that of course, that applies to Kiev as well. They need to provide all this paperwork too, and they haven't. But Donetsk and Lugansk have said that they have provided some paperwork, but it's just it's really hard because a lot of this artillery, it doesn't travel on roads. You can't give an exact route for, for where it's going, you know? Okay. So we're, we're, we, you know, this many degrees across this field, you know, through those, that little copse of trees, I mean, <laughs> what do they expect? And so 
So the OSCE also has refused several times to actually go and observe all of, you know, they've been invited, okay, we'll come and look and and watch, observe like you're supposed to, all, all the artillery we're moving, and they haven't. So, but um, apparently Kiev has started withdrawing some of their heavy artillery up to like 15 to 20 percent is one figure I read. Mm-hmm. Hard to know how true that is. But at the same time, for all this for all this time, they have still been shelling various areas. So it's very clear if you just look at even the kind of half-hearted, lame statements that the OSCE puts out that Donetsk and Lugansk are putting a lot more effort into maintaining the ceasefire and going through the points of the Minsk agreements than Kiev is. And that'll probably continue until Kiev does something to totally negate uh, and make null and void the Minsk agreements. Zakharchenko, a couple days ago, um, when Kiev had yet to initiate the withdrawal of their artillery and to cease shelling, said, gave them an ultimatum and said that by today or last night, if they haven't initiated the withdrawal, that the Minsk agreements would be dead and that that would make, you know, all the all the agreements null and void and the the front line would be reestablished as it was on February 12th before the agreements were signed. So I haven't seen any updates yet today on what is the status of that ultimatum. And uh, the backdrop of this, we were talking about this a little earlier. Um, William, you had mentioned that the, uh, uh, Ukraine is in dire straits economically. Yes, they are. The value of their currency has been uh, <clears throat> yeah, their lowered. currency is uh, lost seventy percent so far, um, and uh, now hundreds of people are gathered outside the National Bank of Ukraine, which is in Kiev, uh, on Saturday to protest the bank's policy and demanding the resignation of of its head, uh, Valeria Monterova. Uh, the list of demands includes, among other things, measures to alleviate the plight of borrowers who took out loans denominated in foreign currency as uh, Hervinia's exchange rate is rapidly falling. Uh, these include a, a law enabling them to repay loans at the exchange rate valid at the time they took them out. Um, this is uh, Yats, Yatsenyuk mm-hmm. has decided uh, he needs to have an emergency meeting about this. It's going to be on Monday. Um, you know, the central bank has been trying to to do to to uh, create measures to rectify the situation, but it hasn't helped. Um, but it's creating a panic amongst the Ukrainian citizens and the consumers. Uh, they're storming the supermarkets and pharmacies. Uh, they're buying up a, a lot of the cheap products such as coffee, tea, sunflower oil. Uh, they have all vanished from the shelves. <clears throat> And the stores have started to introduce rationing mm-hmm. to help keep people from from buying too much too much stuff and stockpiling it. But now there's some experts <laughs> who warn the Ukrainian customers against stockpiling flowers and cereals and suggesting that the cost of these products are unlikely to rise. But they recommend buying caviar, medicine, and alcohol, which are products that are more expensive. And with the hervnia continuing to slide, they're going to even go up in price. And that's kind of strange. And I think I'd rather be stockpiling stuff I need. 
Yeah, it's it's all about the value, right? You want to make good investments that you can, you know, recoup their value and and more. I mean, sure. What do you need food for? <laughs> and do the people even have enough to make some yeah. that those kinds of investments? Um, one uh, uh, lady from from Ukraine wrote a, a nice little letter to uh, Miss Shedlock. Uh, we have quite a panic over the collapse of currency. People buy any food products that they can be stored. Everyone wants to rid the hervnia. We haven't seen anything like this since 1991 when the Soviet Union collapsed. Stores are empty. It's hard to say what the exchange rate this day, somewhere between 34 and 42. There are riots in downtown today. A group of protesters was beaten up by police. They marched through downtown and gave a last warning to government officials. Next time they said they will shoot some officials. Ukraine is on the brink, but the West is not in a hurry to give us money. Perhaps they want something. Maybe they know the money will end up with corrupt officials who will steal it. Either way, the few billions they promised in March won't save our economy, not after this panic started. <clears throat> so, yeah, they're they're blaming uh, the Yatsenyuk government was blaming currency exchanges, uh, and now they're blaming the supermarket directors. <laughs> Oh boy! Wasn't Yitzhanyuk like um, director of uh, economic affairs? He didn't he have some kind of title related to the economy a few years ago? Good old Yats. No, I'm not sure about that. Yeah, I think he did. But uh, in any case, uh, so he's just calling on Poroshenko to have an emergency meeting at this point, and yeah, and, to address the situation. And to address <laughs> it. But what are they going to do? Yeah. They're going to borrow money from the IMF. Well, they may. Uh, Fire the central bank head, who knows, you know, just to please the people, to get them to calm down. Well, that's what you get for, you know, allowing the U.S. to take over your country. It it always seems to go in the same direction. I mean, U.S. freedom and democracy is uh, pretty ugly. That's what it looks like. Also, there was a... This was pretty interesting, too, that the <clears throat> the director of the Ukrainian State Reserve, Vladimir Zhukov, uh, he demanded that uh, they open their storehouses and fill the shelves again with flour, sugar, canned meat, and buckwheat from the stores. In response, the keeper of Motherland's strategic stores revealed a terrible military secret to Yatsenyuk and Poroshenko. The storehouses are empty. <laughs> um Good old Jayhawk, he uh, he had a good comment there. Uh, There indeed were earlier reports that the Strategic Reserve was being unsealed to support military operations on the Donbass. The Army has to eat, after all, and maintaining several tens of thousands of soldiers for nearly a year is likely to make a dent. Uh, The second factor is the Junta's desperate need to earn hard currency. So they're probably selling off some of those stores. Uh, including the the Mariupol's huge grain reserves. Hmm. So they are very desperate. Maybe Victoria Newland can can walk around and (laughs) hand out food to everybody. Uh, Yeah, cookies. (laughs) Newland's got plenty of cookies. She should just be, you know, dropping them from, you know, USA plays and helicopters. Yeah. Poroshenko can drop his chocolate. Yeah. He's got plenty of chocolate. Chocolate and cookies. What more do you need? Yes. Lots of meat, chocolate, and cookies. <laughs> well, I think we can move on from from Russia and, and Ukraine for now. Well, first of all, uh, I just think with all that's 
going on and the, the position that Poroshenko is in, he might want to get in touch with this guy, an Italian neurosurgeon, Sergio Canavero, um, who claims to be able to transplant a head, or that at least that he will be able to by 2017. Poroshenko may need a, either a new body or a new brain in order to, to survive. He's just got to hold on for another couple of years, and then he'll be all right. But, okay, moving on. Well, speaking of uh, economic concerns, an interesting report uh, was reported on recently that 1.6 billion people in the world, so about you know almost a quarter of the population, have to pay bribes for everyday public services like health care and education. So this was a report um, put out by the University of Birmingham or researchers at the University of Birmingham. So apparently... Europe has very low rates of bribery, with only 4% on average making such payments. Um, in contrast, the average is 22% in Latin America, 29% in the 30 African countries surveyed. Uh, Professor Rose, one of the authors of the study, said that within every country, or every continent, sorry, there are major differences in the percentage of people annually paying bribes. In Africa, the range is between 63% in Sierra Leone and 4% in Botswana. In the European Union, which has the goal of upholding the rule of law, there were 29% paying a bribe in Lithuania and fewer than 1% reporting bribing a, a public official in Britain. The European contribution to total corruption is in the bribes that multinational corporations pay to the political elites to obtain big bucks for contracts, uh, such as, things, such as uh, things like building dams or supplying military aircraft. So... Basically, there, it sounds like there's bribing going on everywhere, um, but in the Western countries, it's more a matter of, you know, big political corporate bribes, and in other countries, it's a matter of, you know, bribing public officials in order to receive things that they should do without bribes. So that's a, a nice little glimpse into the state of society as it is now. Hmm. Uh, moving on. How much were you paid to make that statement? Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm gonna. What's it called? The I'm gonna plead fifth. Okay. <laughs> In other news, okay, no, this is like some some breaking news. I was I was very interested to read this. It turns out that the top secret identity of Jihadi John has finally been revealed. By day, a computer programming graduate from University of Westminster. Living in Queen's Park, West London, by night, evil, murderous jihadi, Mohammed Mwazi. So this is the guy, Jihadi John, made famous or infamous by his numerous appearances in the CIA-created, or, no, sorry, in the ISIS-inspired and created videos um, that have been released over the past year or so of, you know, beheadings and murders and sorts of things. You know, he's the guy with the with the British accent saying, Oh, you know, well, I won't I won't imitate him. But apparently his ID his identity was known his top his secret identity was known by the UK for a while now, but it was kept secret due to quote operational risk. Now, what do you think that means? Well they say that lives were in danger if he were to release uh, to make his identity known to the world. I think that operational risk is that, you know, 
I mean, they just didn't want to screw up their operation. They had a good thing going. That's the uh, English equivalent to uh, national security. Yeah. Operational risk, uh, Jihadi John. Well, okay, so it turns out uh, Jihadi John or uh, Mohammed Mwazi, he, he's kind of been on the right of UK authorities for years. Um, the K, uh, there's a charity in the UK called Cage. Um, I can't remember what that stands for, but it's kind of, it deals with Muslim issues. I believe the charity director says that he knew Mwazi for approximately two years. Now, uh, Mwazi had tried to make a trip to Kuwait several years ago and the UK security forces inter- intervened and attempted to recruit him as a spy. He was later detained and interrogated in Tanzania in 2009. So Jihadi John, like so many other um, of these public Muslim terrorists, just so happened to have, you know, ties to the UK or whatever country's security services, run-ins with them, interrogations, arrests, attempts to recruit them as spies, now, of course, the UK government denies that they were successful, but do we know that? Mm-hmm. I mean, in the Uni- in the US, pretty much every terrorist plot that is foiled has been created by the FBI with their their own Muslim informants. So, I mean, it's just standard operating procedure. So, I I just thought it was interesting that Jihadi John is most likely or was, you know, turned by the UK security services. Is he related to um, Chemical Ali? <laughs> Sorry, that's, <laughs> that's a reference <laughs> to the WMD, another construct, thanks to Western intelligence agencies. Well, Donald Trump. <laughs> speaking, of, um, speaking of Muslims... British Muslims, um, another survey, there was a survey conducted uh, among a thousand British Muslims recently by Comrez, uh, compiled for the BBC, and they found that two-thirds of the respondents felt that acts of violence against people who produce images of the Prophet Muhammad could never be justified. So two out of three British Muslims think that there's absolutely never any justification for violence in response to a person that produces an image of the Prophet Muhammad. However, 27% showed some sympathy for the motives behind the Paris attacks. I think those numbers are pretty predictable. I mean, you get any population of people, of course, the vast majority of them are not going to, to believe that killing someone over a, you know, a cartoon is, is justifiable. Mm-hmm. Um, no matter what the religious belief is, I mean, humans seem to be split up or divided among a kind of bell curve in terms of just everyday moral values and the way they go about their lives and what they think is right and wrong. Of course, there are differences, sometimes stark differences between different cultures, but when it comes down to it, it pretty much averages out. So, And even those 27% that showed some sympathy, it's possible to show some sympathy towards towards someone that does an act like that without either being willing to do it yourself or fully um, condoning it. 
because at least uh, or 80% of the respondents also told the survey that, that they were themselves deeply offended by the images. So, of course, if you're deeply offended, um, you will have some sympathy or, uh, you know, a percentage of a population will have some sympathy with the motives for the attack. That doesn't mean they condone the attacks themselves. And 32% were not surprised by the attacks, of course. Um, that should have been a given, uh, I think, for most people, not just Muslims. The results further suggest that half of Muslims living in Britain feel they suffer faith-based discrimination and believe the country is becoming less tolerant. Nearly 50% said they feel prejudice against their faith, um, and it makes living in the UK difficult. 35% said they think the majority of British people do not trust Muslims. This is despite 95% saying that they feel loyal to the country. So yeah, 95% of British Muslims feel totally loyal to to the UK, but don't feel like they're safe, basically. And we've seen that, you know, in in previous polls that we've talked about and uh, just the general situation in Europe. What did Madonna have to say about the position or the, the situation in Europe recently? Feels like fascist Nazi era Germany. Mm-hmm. Okay. Moving on. Anything else you guys want to talk about? Well, uh, there was this uh, story coming out now about um, Homan Square uh, in Chicago's West Side. It's a nondescript warehouse or facility where uh, there's been a lot of uh, secretive work by special police units. Um, but basically, it it uh, it has the distinction of looking a lot like a, a black site or or a place where um, people are. Uh, brought in uh, ostensibly on criminal charges and uh, really kind of uh, roughed up, not allowed to call a lawyer or make any phone calls whatsoever. Um, quite often they're, uh, you know, they're, they're kept in, in really hard conditions, you know, shackled in cells um, and not given any kind of, um, of uh, permission to to reach out. So, uh, if if people have been arrested um, and brought there, uh, you know, the, the, it becomes problematic because um, there is a, a kind of blackout uh, within the police system of Chicago about their whereabouts. And um, you know, if these people have lawyers uh, or family, they have to be very aggressive. Uh, and in trying to um, learn of the whereabouts of of their family or friends, um, obviously this has a uh, more than a passing resemblance to um, you know black sites around the world, um, places where uh, the CIA has been known to uh, take people suspected of terrorism or or other charges. And torturing them and 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 basically locking them away. Um, you know, many of the uh, people at Guantanamo have have had to you know stay at such places before being sent to Guantanamo. Reminds um, me of an old word we haven't heard in a while: uh, renditions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
Well, and the techniques that they use in Homan Square are reportedly identical to the CIA enhanced interrogation. Um, even one of the guys uh, that was uh, one of the guys that was responsible for the conditions at Guantanamo was even a, a Chicago police officer. Uh, w- there's no known connection between him and Homan Square at this point, but uh, it's quite the the interesting coincidence. I mean, they use the same techniques like uh, uh, holding uh, people in stress positions in shackles for hours. I mean, sleep deprivation, threatening uh, detainees with violence towards their family members. Well, this is like really where beatings, um, you know, the, the war abroad is a reflection of, of how, citizens are being treated here um and uh it's it's happening by degrees but it's happening um so you know i guess this place has been in operation for several years and is finally getting some attention in the media um which is a good thing um but you know the question remains what's going to be done to uh, curtail it and uh, and how many other places are like this around the U.S. that are doing this to people who uh, who haven't had a chance to, to speak to the media or who can't afford attorneys or um, you know who are really at the mercy of uh, whoever runs these types of places. Well, it looks like we've got a caller, so we'll see if this call works. Apparently, it's kind of choppy, but let's see. Hello, caller. Can you tell us your name and where you're calling from? Hey, my name's Andrew. Uh, I hope that you guys can hear me okay. A very slow connection and very remote, far out. So uh, just hoping that it's coming through uh, clear enough. Yeah, we can actually hear you, Andrew. Thanks for calling. What question did you have? Well, actually, I had a few comments. I think you guys are touching on some very important topics and... Uh, you know, when we look at the things like Ukraine and uh, the uh, system that's being set up at the moment in the uh, media where people are starting to feel this sort of Cold War type re- uh, relation between Russia and the United States again, mm-hmm. it's um, it's a very tactic, uh, yet it's very brilliantly rolled out and the methods which are being used are highly sophisticated forms of control. Uh, but but one of the things I hope will happen more in the future is that more blog talk shows and different media outlets will begin speaking about the solutions as opposed to uh, focusing on only what's happening. Because, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, in terms of, of what they can see happening on the ground. Because, um, you know, I've been looking at these things for quite a while and, uh, you know, I don't think any of us can claim to be an absolute expert on any of these things, but especially in the alternative media. Because, I mean, if you think about, for example, the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, Defense Advanced Projects Research Agency, and so many of these agencies, some of them which are not very well known and some of them which are totally unknown, uh, they're highly, mm-hmm. they highly sophisticated in their methods of uh, creating media. And uh, people don't realize that very few, from, from what I've found, very few um, organizations or actually ever big organizations are ever set up for communities or for people on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if, for example, a person is living in any country which is uh, connected to a central bank, that means that their energy is being harnessed. And, and, and people forget that um, 
you know, this is, or they don't know, they either don't know or they've forgotten that this is the purpose uh, where, uh, for why these systems have been set up. Uh, and I don't want to go too far off topic, but if you look at Anatoly Golitsyn, who was a defector from the KGB in the 1980s, I think it was, uh, he just decided he'd had enough and he liked the idea of living in the West. And he wrote a few books. One of them was New Lives for All. And in, his, in that book, he outlined how Russia's going to become a democracy and suddenly they're going to flip over and it's all going to be part of the same game. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm paraphrasing, obviously, I'm not, I haven't got the exact quotes from the book, but essentially all of the community, all of the intelligence agencies around the world, uh, most of them actually work, work together. And yes, there's infighting. And yes, every now and then there's a disagreement, like with what happened with Saddam. Saddam started playing with the oil price because he didn't want to obey his masters anymore. Like what happened with Gaddafi, where he started saying, I want to bring out a gold dinar. I want to be able to have power within Africa. I want people to be able to compete with the West. And he got taken out. So mm -hmm. you see, the official story is always, when I say official story, I mean media news stories that come out every single day, the variety of them. They're all there to prop up a particular image that's on the outer layer. It's the outer shell of what's going on. Like if you look at an egg, you've got the the, the yellow bit in the middle, and you've got the white on the outside. And most people are looking at the white on the outside. They're not seeing the yellow bit in the middle, which also no. exists. But if you had two ants standing at the bottom of this egg, and the one ant says to the other ant, man, there's good stuff in the middle there. I know it. I've heard stories. You know? <laughs> that's, that's kind of what's going on with uh, most of our reality. Uh, you know, we can only see from this plane looking forward, and we don't really, we don't necessarily have a bird's eye view. But if you can get mm -hmm. a bird's eye view, which might take a while to figure out, you can start to see through things like the book uh, that that Anatoly brought out, and you know, various little hints and and things throughout history. Because obviously, this is all very secret and controlled. But but if you look at, um, I mean, there was a funny little YouTube video of. Um, uh, uh, was it was uh, I think, uh, the the uh, Colbert Report or no? Sorry, not uh, John Stewart. John Stewart. Uh, I, don't, I can't remember what his show is called, but it, the, the Daily Show. That's the, the Daily, Daily Show. show. Yeah. So he uh, he yeah he had this little uh, segment in there where he was talking about all the countries around the world that America is busy attacking and making war with, and he said, and we're not going to leave you out, Iran. We know that you're in on the you're in on the list to be some of the most hated nations on the on the earth it's not like you're really in on uh, it's not like you're you're not in on the game and as he did that as he used those words you're not really in on the game we know and he mentioned the presidents of of iran and he stuck his hand into his coat pocket like nudge nudge wink wink because anybody who uh is, in, is initiated into the the occult will know well the occult meaning certain societies will know that when you stick your hand in your pocket like that it's just an allusion to Masonry. So in other words, I think it's Almaginadad, or I don't know if, if I'm correct. Uh, the, uh, the, the president of Iran is probably a Mason, and what he was doing was saying, we're all in on the same game. Jim Carrey also did it recently, but because he's a comedian, he did it so cleverly. And I mean, I'm not saying Jim Carrey's on the level of some of the political analysts, but Jim Carrey uh, you know, made a funny joke recently on one of the shows where he spoke about secret societies, but in a very joking way. So you still don't really know anything. But for those in the know, you know, they know that some of the statements that he made were correct. You know, he came out saying, uh, you know, we're all just here as entertainers to distract you from what's really going on. But because he's a comedian, he can get away with saying that because the person that doesn't, that's not in the know will find it funny that they think it's a big joke. And the person that, you know, uh, 
that yeah whichever side you're coming from however much knowledge you actually have you'll get different things out of what Jim Carrey said yeah. so well, Andrew. It's, it's very difficult to explain but essentially they're all on the, they're all working together Russia and the, the leaders of the United States are working together well like you said I think that uh, I think that there are factions of course involved but in the big picture yeah you've got people in these intelligence agencies all over the world that are working together um, you'd mentioned that the the well, and that's the big picture. But you'd mentioned that you'd like to see more discussion of the solutions. Did you have any thoughts on what those solutions might be? Well, well, well yes, because and I, mean, I appreciate you guys listening to what I have to say. It's it's very difficult because people want to talk about the polarization. And the thing is, for people to not become polarized by uh, it's incredibly difficult it's difficult even being someone that that does look at these things and i'm sure you guys have felt the frustration as well because you can go up to a lot of different people even just on the ground i did an experiment a social experiment recently to see what kind of reactions would i get um uh you know you could say to someone did you know that just about every single president uh, that's ever been you know a, a united states president has, has been a mason uh, and I'm not saying masonry is bad, by the way. There's a lot of good um, allegorical things that come out of masonry, etc. But you know, uh, the funny, um, the funny story, uh, the funny saying goes, you know, it's not, it's not completely inconceivable to think that really powerful people might actually use their power to, to mm-hmm. maintain and get more power. <laughs> you know, it's, so, so the solutions are for people on the ground level to start saying, hang on, I'm not going to go along with the construct. Let me stop think, see what's going on, and start organizing. Because if you look at someone like Obama, he's an organizer. He goes and, you know, one of his favorite books is Rules for Radicals. And that's, a, you know, that's, you could call it communist, but actually it's just sort of, you can label things whatever you want, but it's, it's often two sides of the same coin, democracy and communism, two sides of the same coin. In other words, mm-hmm. uh, within certain mystery schools, certain people have gotten together and said, you know what, we're going to create constructs. One of them we're going to call communism, the other one we're going to call democracy. And then they start releasing books, some of them called communist books, and some of them called democratic books. But in many different cases, it's all leading to the same thing, which is power and control. So if people can start extracting themselves from that system and say, okay, instead of watching the NFL or whatever it might be, no offense to people who love the NFL, but uh, whatever it might be that's your particular distraction, say, okay, the situation is actually quite dire because I'm inside a construct in which I don't have power and I don't have any way to defend myself against, say, for example, fractional reserve banking, which is what's been going mm-hmm. on for just over 100 years since the sinking of the Titanic. And, and ta- well, it wasn't actually the Titanic, it was the Olympic. But in any case, Jacob Astor and the two or the three, four different people that would have resisted the Federal Reserve were assassinated. And you have, um, you have the, uh, the Federal Reserve getting put in place. So it's a private bank, and then basically all of the wealth of America has, through various different mathematical programs, been siphoned off the people into the Bank of England and, by extension, to the different people that have got shares in that particular branch of the global empire, the global, the new world order, which already exists. It's just that it's the externalization of this new world order that we're seeing now, but it's existed for a long time. The British Empire went covert. The British hey, Empire Andrew, was a yeah. physical manifestation Andrew? of the became a new world order, which exists. Andrew. You're, you're saying a, a lot of hey, you're saying a lot of interesting things, and um, sure, actually, okay. you know, I, 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 I'm thinking um, th- there are a few things to uh, to respond to. Um, 
And, oh, uh, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Um, just, just so that this has more of a feel of an exchange. Um, though I, I, I know how you feel. I'm sorry, I, mean, I, I just, I get carried away. <laughs> no, no, I, it, it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it, once you've, um, well, well just wait, how, Andrew, yeah, you, you said a lot and thank you for calling. So I think, I think we'll, we'll end the call right no there, but we're going to respond, we're going to respond and, and talk about some of the things that you're talking about. So yeah, stay on, cool. you know, stay listening to the show and, uh, and yeah, maybe we'll, maybe we'll have something to say that, uh, could add to your, to your base of knowledge. All right. Okay. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, thanks very much. All right. All the okay. best, man. You too. Bye-bye. Well, um, for one, uh, something that occurred to me, you know, that the, the devil's greatest trick was, uh, in convincing people that he didn't exist. Um, and so a lot of, uh, a lot of the things I was saying were, um, felt very much like that. People, uh, people have been um, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled <laughs> was convincing the world he didn't exist. Thank you for that. <laughs> uh, I guess that was well. Repetition. I wanted to I wanted to talk about two things that Andrew said, or two concepts that he mentioned. One was polarization, and then the, the whole idea of two sides of the same coin. Because I, I agree with that that the one of the biggest issues is this polarization and how to get away from that and to identify it and work against it. And while, while I, I agree that there's, um, you know, there are a lot of Masons out there. I, I don't necessarily think that the, that Freemasonry is kind of the, the top level, um, descriptor or, or word that could be used to describe, who all these people are. Yeah. I think many of them are involved even, you know, possibly even the vast majority of them are involved in certain secret societies and organizations like that. But one of the, I think that the, probably the big issue, and it's one that we've talked about a lot. I mean, um, we've published a book on it, uh, political ponderology by Andrew Lobachevsky is that, and it, it, it's, it kind of explains this polarization and the, this whole idea of two sides of the same coin in in very interesting terms, and that is the distinction between psychopathy and ordinary individuals, because psychopaths naturally are attracted towards positions of power, whether that be power in a personal relationship or in a workplace environment or aspiring to the level of you know full and total power ruling a government or even ruling the entire world, a vast empire. And so psychopaths like con men, they will adopt any, uh, any mask, any persona in order to dupe the person that they want to be under their control or that they want to exploit. And so that is, and when you look at it, ideologies or political parties or, um, you know, communism or democracy or capitalism, whatever, those are simply masks or they are the persona that the con man adopts in order to get what he wants. And when you strip off that mask, all psychopaths are essentially the same. They're doing the same thing. They're using the same techniques in order to gain power and in order to use that power and gain more power and retain that power just like when you strip back 
the political ideology, you see the same rapacious machine that is, you know, modern or or any kind of geopolitics or uh, world conflict or international relations or anything like that. It has the same flavor, the same character, because behind it, behind those masks, it is the same creature. And it is a group of psychopaths that are striving for power and want to keep it and will do anything to keep it. And the way they do that is they use the same techniques. I mean, you look at the so-called democracy of the United States in a capitalist system that like in this home and square in Chicago that is using techniques of torture completely against any kind of law or just moral values. I mean, that's the same stuff that the the KGB or any secret service agency around the world uses or does. I mean, it's the same torture. So you see the same dynamics across the world um, despite whatever political party or ideology is on the surface. And I agree. And, uh, of course there are psychopaths and there are psychopaths. Um, you know, the, uh, the petty criminal who has no, uh, compunction about killing someone for a little money, uh, operates on one level. Uh, the Dick Cheney's of this world, uh, operate on a, on yet another level. Um, but I agree. It's, um, uh, if, if we're going to, uh, address the problems of this world, um, then, uh, what most of us will need to do is identify what, where most of the problems stem from. Uh, and that's the fact that there are people in positions of power who, uh, have, have no, um, issues with, uh, hurting and causing the suffering of, of many others in order to achieve their aims. Um, so that I would say is, is one of the first things that we can do as individuals is to learn about this problem. Um, and also how they influence people who may have a, a very normal or healthy way of, of thinking. Um, they do it through the media. They do it through propaganda. Uh, people don't realize how they're affected um, and what the dynamics of it are and the mechanisms. Uh, and, you know, as Harrison was uh, referring to, um, political ponderology is a really just an excellent examination of uh, the ponderization or influence that these types of people uh, have on the, um, on the injured or the instinct impaired or, or people who just have no idea, um, of what the depths of influence, um, depths of influence is, uh, that psychopaths have on individuals. So it's a very big problem. Uh, I'm, I'm glad Andrew brought it up, um, because I don't, I don't think we could discuss it enough. Well, I think it gets to the heart of that issue of polarization because psychopaths polarize people. That's the way they operate. And when you look at it in those terms, you'll see that it's not a matter of communism versus capitalism or Russia versus the states or any other dichotomy or you know conflict that you can set up between two opposites. It really is a matter of normal people in every country, humanity as almost a whole against a small population within every other 
every country's population. It's like every country has an enemy within. And humanity should be united against that enemy within, not another country, because the bad guys in the other country are just as bad or as the bad guys in your own country, because they're everywhere and they're in positions of power and they're the ones pulling the strings. So in order to get over that polarization, people have to realize that humanity, we have a lot more in common with people in other countries and other continents, the, the, the normal, just regular people over there than we have with the people that are controlling political processes and social realities. And I think that that realization or that idea is, is a profound one in order to, to get over that, the polarization that results from, you know, the very processes that we're talking about. Pathocracy. Yep. Bringing back the morals of all the people. Yeah. That's the thing we have in common. But we just don't seem to get it. I mean, people people don't seem to realize that, you know, people in the states, people anywhere, have a lot more com a lot more in common with people, they're just the regular people in Russia, say, than they do with their own leaders. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not some other country, some other ideology that is the problem. It's the it's people, you know, among us that have no conscience. That are when you when you attempt or even approach being able to grok them, you realize that they they have very little resemblance to what we understand as human beings. They're just completely foreign. It's like they're it's like there's some kind of like strange alien species dropped on the planet that just has nothing in common on the inside but happens to look like us. And if you try to explain, uh, especially um, in political terms, uh, you know how how things really work. Or, for instance, that um, that that uh, that this guy Nemtsov, for instance, might have actually been a victim to uh, the CIA or or, or other agency uh, just to stir things up in Russia. Cynicism. Yeah, you can well imagine uh, the the um, the doubt uh, or the skepticism uh, regarding such a reality. It's it's almost. You know, it's it's the stuff of movies. It's it's unfathomable. It's uh, and yet uh, it's happening. Uh, and yet that that's that's the terror of the situation. Um, having said that, um, Andrew, and for all folks uh, who you know where this subject of psychopathy may be new, uh, just a few books you uh, may want to consider checking out: um, the Mask of Sanity by Hervey Cleckley, um, Without Conscience by Robert Hare. Um, I'm, I'm sure there are two or three others. That Snakes we, and Suits. Snakes and Suits is an excellent one. Oh, Women Who Love Psychopaths. Mm. Now, that's one I wanted to, to bring up today, just uh, in relation to uh, an article that I read recently. It's up on the SOT page. Uh, it's uh, a letter from a psychiatrist to young people. And... In it, the the psychiatrist, she makes some good points about this uh, Fifty Shades of Grey movie and book. If you haven't heard of it, then you probably don't get out much or don't read the newspaper or, or uh, watch movies or something like that. But So Fifty Shades of Grey, it's a, a novel about sadism, pretty much. That's it in a word. But some of the points that she makes 
in this in this letter are pretty profound, and I think people need to hear them. So I'd recommend uh, searching the article. Like I said, it's on the SOT page, and checking it out. Maybe send it around to your friends, because what the what Fifty Shades of Grey is is basically uh, it glamorizes and whitewashes physically and emotionally abusive relationships, and it presents it like it presents it in a glamorized way, as if as if um, it's not as bad as it appears, and you know there may be uh, a happy ending to a story like this. Well, anyone that's um, that has experience in mental health field fields, or um, you know has experienced things like that, it's just a complete fantasy. Um, it's, I mean, so for people who haven't read the book or aren't familiar with the story, it's about this kind of rich guy, Christian Gray, who had, who was severely neglected as a child. And so as an adult, the only way that he can, um, respond to like uh, a, a relationship is through violence and control. And so he does this to the main character in the story that he gets into a sexual relationship with. But the author of the of the letter, as she says, first of all, abuse is not glamorous or cool. It is never okay under any circumstances. In the real world, this story would end badly with Christian in jail and Anna in a shelter or morgue. Or maybe Christian would continue beating Anna and she'd stay and suffer. Either way, their lives would most definitely not be a fairy tale. Trust me on this one. The basic message being that in a, in a normal in the real world, a guy like Christian Gray will not change because he doesn't have that that Hollywood backstory of the neglected child. You know, he's really got a heart of gold, and if, if you only love him enough, then he will change and become a, a better person and stop beating you. <laughs> and it doesn't work like that. And that's why I wanted to mention Women Who Love Psychopaths because really what this is is some, you know, it's a fantasy world creation of what in reality is just an abusive relationship with a pathological male. And this comes back to ponderology in the sense that people to, to know about psychopathology, know about psychopaths in order to avoid situations like this. Because if you go into a relationship with a guy like that, thinking that you can change him and that things will turn out and that he'll stop beating you. I mean, it's, you know, uh, this is really a reflection of our times because uh, in the past 20 years, there were so many films that were about the the, the heroine that uh, was married to or had a relationship with an abusive spouse and then ends up escaping and the, the, the pathological spouse pursues her. And finally, she, you know, she has to... Um, she has to draw the line and, and, you know, it usually comes to some kind of uh, violent climax. And, uh, you know, the, these, these types of movies, I, I don't remember the names of them right now. There was one with Jennifer Lopez, another one with Julia Roberts. They were kind of, you know, burst, you know, Hollywood kind of thrillers, um, pretty conventional, but at least the message was there. Uh, you know, run away from your pathological partner. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, now we have, especially with the Twilight series, it's got all kinds of mixed messages, who I believe the author of uh, Fifty Shades of Grey was, you know, inspired by, um, inspired to write this book. Was it Sleeping with the Enemy? Yeah. And Enough? 
Yes. Yeah. Thanks thank for you. the ch- chat room chatters. Thank you, for, chat room chatters, <laughs> for their pop culture knowledge. Uh, but um, yeah, so we're 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 really headed uh, in a terrible direction here. Um, and there was another article about the film that was written by Chris Hedges, who usually uh, um, writes about the war on terror and and uh, and things of a, a more political nature. Um, and, uh, he made the connection between, uh, this type of, uh, pop culture entertainment and the, uh, the object, objectification of women and the, the violent, um, turn that a lot of pornography has, has made in, uh, in recent years, uh, with, with grotesque, uh, just barbaric, uh, uh, abusive um, things that are, that's passing off as, as entertainment um, as if porno- pornography wasn't bad enough. Um, so all of this stuff is really working on, on a lot of people um, and uh, it's, it's seeping into, you know, the mainstream. And coming back to home and square, we see, just how pervasive this mindset is and how it extends to all areas of, of life where we have, and you can, you can see it in history, how these things progress, but we don't learn from history, how we have the situation like in Guantanamo Bay and all the sex sites where these things that most people just don't want to know about and would, you know, it would shock them to their core if they actually witnessed an event like, like a torture these things go on and, you know, in other places, the CIA does its, its dirty work, but, you know, I don't want to see it. But then it just, you know, it somehow happens to come home. And now the same practices are being done on ordinary U.S. citizens in Chicago, where they are basically disappeared. It's like living in some kind of totalitarian nightmare where the secret police come and knock on your door and disappear you. Where did you go? Oh, you don't know. No one knows because there isn't any paper trail. The documents haven't been signed. You're taken to some black site where you're tortured, coerced into giving a confession to something you may not have done. Can't talk to your family or your lawyer. Um, it's just, it's, it's a nightmare and it's, it's pervasive because of what we were talking about just a few minutes ago because, because of psychopathy. And this is the psychopathic mindset that just infects everything. That's why Lobachevsky said that pathocracy, as he defines it, is not a social system or an economic system or a political system. It is a social disease that takes over entire nations and spreads between nations. Mm-hmm. And the only, the only solution is to be aware of that disease and once you know the cause of the disease, you can take steps to take care of that cause. And, you know, one of which would be, oh, if only we could get accurate uh, psychopathy checklist tests done on, you know, everyone involved in government, military, the intelligence agencies, police. Well, these police. I mean, the police probably purposefully like higher psychopaths i mean but anyways that i mean it's a pipe dream but we got to start start somewhere and uh i don't know if if it's possible but yeah education is the first mm-hmm. step yeah well um anything else on home and square 
you want to talk about? I think we basically covered it. All right. Then I think we're going to end it there for today. So thank you to all our listeners. Thank you to Andrew for calling in. Hope we can talk to you again sometime in the future. And be sure to tune in tomorrow, same time, 2 to 4 Eastern, for Behind the Headlines, and then on Monday for the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network. And we'll be back next week with a special guest whom we'll be interviewing. Can't release the name of the guest yet because we <laughs> still have to figure out what's going on, but we will. We, we should have a guest next week, and it'll be interesting. So keep a lookout on uh, on the Cassiopeia Forum. We'll make an announcement there or uh, or elsewhere. Just tune in. And, uh, yeah, so see you next week. Thanks for listening. Have a good one, folks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay.